Hello, friends. Our guest today is a young, talented, and warm-hearted person with experience dealing with groups commonly called cults. She grew up in the Salt Lake area in religious setting and has spent a solid portion of her life helping people seek help and remove themselves from dangerous religious groups and activities. We discussed a group called the Kingstons and a number of other groups with ties to polygamy. This was an exciting, eye-opening episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Here is my friend, Ashlyn Hilliard. So I got to be honest with you, you were a lot younger than I thought you were going to be. <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the reason I got a hold of you was because of Lisa Kendall, mm -hmm. who I had on here a couple months back. And she explained her role and history with the move of God, which was a cult that she was involved with for... If I remember correctly, about 10 or 12 years of her, her childhood. Um, and she recommended you because of your involvement with a different religion. Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, my path has been anything but uh, conventional <laughs> to say the least. And while I am very young, I'm, I'm only 26, um, but I feel like I have just been through so much as you can imagine, um, I currently work for the International Cultic Studies Association. So I help professionals who have been in touch with the cultic phenomena, whether they're former members of cultic groups, mental health professionals, researchers, academics, um, mental health professionals, really anyone who's come into touch with cults and issues surrounding cults. And what really launched me into this field was uh, my departure from a particular religious group. And it's pretty well known. It's it's called the Church of Christ. Um, I came particularly from a more um, hyper-conservative branch of the Church of Christ. And honestly, my departure from that was when I realized that my experience within the group was high control. Um, it was a high demand experience. The way that um, I was treated when I departed wasn't just I'm leaving this church to go sort of seek my own way or, you know, figure out life differently. It was I was treated as if I was completely leaving God. Um, I had people who were very close to me in my life who you know, said some horrible things to me as I had departed. And it was very traumatic. And my experience is nothing like what perhaps Lisa experienced and she talked about. Um, you know, my experience, really anyone, and I tell people, can experience spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse can happen in a church setting, and it could be the reason for someone's departure out of a, you know, abusive church environment or religious experience. But it's also to ex possible to experience religious abuse and spiritual abuse, but also remain in the church that you're in. Um, it's possible to have a negative experience in a church, but remain in a church um, and to still enjoy being in a church. But for me, when I knew that I wanted to depart from this specific religious adherence, it, it was hell um, the way that I was treated. And, you know, we find that it's, it's not all too uncommon. Um, and I was very grateful because I was raised in a family where my parents loved me very, very much. Um, I loved them very much. And it's been a learning opportunity 
um, for those uh, people in that previous community and I've still tried to maintain contact with and interact with, it's been a learning experience for all of us. I certainly, when I was leaving and departing, felt a lot of rage and anger um, and just because of the way I was treated. And looking back, I'm ashamed of a lot of the ways that I handled myself now that I understand the field better, um, maintaining communication um, to me is one of the most important things at the end of the day. Um, and I want to have a relationship with people, even if they still attend that church or group or uh, what have you. So, you know, I'm in a place now where it's been really cool to kind of see the results of those bridges that have been built. Um, you know, when I first left, I went through this very intense anger stage. And now I feel like I am myself again. Um, it's kind of been a rediscovery and connecting, reconnecting with those who may still be in um, has been a joy. So did your parents get you involved then? I was born into this uh, specific group, um, this belief system, I guess you could say. Um, and it's multi-generational for me in my case. So you can only imagine, um, you know, and I make this comparison a lot, it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything in particular about that specific church. The same can be said with like, if you were in a multi-generational Catholic family, for example, or any other more conservative Christian group and your son or daughter departs from that, that can be challenging for any family. Um, so yeah, I was born and raised and me sort of breaking away from those cycles to make my own path was devastating um, for people in my life. And I can understand why it would be sure. um, from their perspective. Um, they love me very much. I love them very much. Um, but it was it was just kind of this lack of understanding in what I had experienced. Um, what what area was this? So ge geographically, yeah. you mean? Yeah. So I my dad was in the military, so I was one of those military brats, and we moved around a lot. Um, my hometown is Utah. Um, that's where I claim as home. And Salt Lake? Salt Lake area. It's like 20 minutes north of Salt Lake City. Um, I grew up in Kaysville, and that's where I attended school from like fourth grade on. And so for me, Salt Lake is home. Um, and you're kind of an outcast if you're not a part of the church in Salt Lake, yeah? Yeah. So it was interesting because I'm not uh, – I wasn't Mormon um, or LDS as the majority of the population was in that area. Um, but I still went to a conservative Christian church. So it was almost like being in a bubble um, within a bubble, so to speak. Um, so I certainly felt like an outcast growing up out there, not being Mormon or LDS. Um, many of my friends were Mormon, um, and I loved them very much, um, despite our differences. But it felt like this constant sort of conversion battle where they would try to convert me. And at the time, I would try to convert them. Um, and it was just, it was this really weird dynamic to grow up in. Well, what, what are the main differences between Church of Christ, right, which is what you came from, mm -hmm. and uh, the Mormons? There's a lot of differences. Um, I mean, we don't have temples, for example. Um, so many differences. I think what would be easier if I, if I explain some of the similarities in okay. um, that both of these groups came out of the Second Great Awakening era in the United States. And the 
per, the two people who were foundational to the Church of Christ movement was Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone. And what's interesting is these two figures in history were coming up and were very influential around the same time that Joseph Smith was. Um, and it's interesting when you look at the history and the research how some of the ideologies and shared conceptions on what the church can be, what it can look like, what the purpose it can serve as. Um, there's kind of this mixture of ideas between the three of them. Um, you can see aspects where they kind of influenced one another um, during that time in history. So what's really interesting is I grew up believing that the church I was involved in was you know, their intent was to be the original um, church in the modern day. So back in the book of Acts, you know, the Christians who were studying um, in secret, you know, there was a lot of persecution. We essentially were the modern day church. And similarly, Mormons also believe um, that they are the rightful modern day movement um, of their kind. And so it's, you know, a lot of these groups, it, it kind of creates this us versus them dichotomy, right? Where it's like, we are either the true church or the reestablished church. And that is something that you see very commonly. Um, and so the group that I grew up in, Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, um, talked a lot about, this is around the time where the common sense hermeneutic was coming into play. Um, you know, um, Locke, um, his ideology of, um, just, you know, simplifying things down. And so what this started was there was a declaration and address. And in that declaration and address, um, these men in the movement essentially um, stated that they would like to condense religion down to a set of principles that all men might agree upon. Okay. Which sounds great in theory. I mean, it sounds like, yeah, like, let's unify. I mean, these two men were born out of this time where there were so many different religious movements and ideologies popping up. So it sounds like a great thing to unite people under. But the problem was, was that everyone was trying to do that in their own way. Same as Joseph Smith. You know, people were trying to unite people under sort of this simplistic narrative. Um, and what do you think their goal was? You well, think they really thought they had the truth? I don't, you know, I think in terms of their goal, we're looking at the United States during a time where there was a lot of colonization of the West. You know, there was this frontierism, there was this excitement um, around, you know, bringing these ideas to this exciting um, new frontier. And it really kind of has a taste of colonialism to it. If we can bring our ideas and simplify it down to a way that all men might agree, and that's yeah. actually a direct quote, um, then we can bring that into this sort of new world in a world hmm. of self-discovery. Hmm. And it's amazing in that the church I grew up in, those ideals, um, you know, even throughout time from the Second Great Awakening in the U.S. to now, it is why certain interpretations are the way they are in Scripture. It's created a movement, um, and there's this concept, it's called hermeneutical methodology. In essence, that means it's the way in which you interpret Scriptures. Okay. Um, everyone interprets Scriptures differently. You know, all religions can look at Scriptures differently. But what's interesting is this common sense hermeneutic um, from that time period has influenced how scriptures are interpreted today. So in the Church of Christ, um, if you were to look at a Bible passage, you know, they try to use the Bible um, alone. Um, 
And as opposed to what? Well, the difficulty is, is they see certain scriptures as um, very literal. So, for example, Churches of Christ traditionally only sing a cappella. There's no instruments used in worship. Huh. It's something that distinguishes them um, as a church. And they're very proud of that. And often the singing is very beautiful. Um, but the reason for that is because the New Testament, which they consider to be the new law, mentions singing um, from the heart, from the soul. Um, it doesn't talk about instruments. You know, it wasn't blatantly stated you can use instruments in a worship setting. And because of that, they didn't want to overinterpret um, or misinterpret or overreach or create their own rules. So they take the Bible very literally in some instances. Um, but then, of course, you get to Revelation and there's harps and there's, you know, there's these different things. So, again, these were sort of these ideas of this sort of literalism, which came through the hermeneutical methodology back then. Okay, so. I realize it's very complex. Well, <laughs> the, the thing that just boggles my mind is. So there's a number of ways to interpret the Bible and all the variations of it. And if you choose to take the words in there mm -hmm. literally, then there's a lot of things you shouldn't do. Yeah. You shouldn't use a computer. You shouldn't drive a yeah. car. Like, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you, they're, they're like, uh, we can't have any instruments yeah. uh, during singing yeah. worship. But you can do all this other yeah. stuff. And that and that's the tension that uh -huh. it creates. And it also creates that in other groups or churches as well. Yeah. And the difficulty in what can create an environment of high control is when you don't allow for other interpretations. So this interpretation of scripture has gone so far as to, well, if you do have an instrument in worship, that can put your salvation at risk. Hmm. And that's not believed by everybody in the church, but for a lot of people, it is. If you go to a Baptist church, for example, where there is an instrument, you know, that, that could be condemning to you. And so that is what creates this tension in this environment of control, yeah. is if you don't subscribe to the particular ideological, theological interpretations that they pose. And so that, for me, was what I realized. Yeah. And that was, you know, I spent a lot of time debating, um, talking with the elders, you know, and I, I had very kind people along the way, um, but also those who, you know, didn't, it, it's the way it's always been and it will be the way that it will still go, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so what was best for me was to step away from that. I couldn't handle, um, you know, the, the lack of freedom for thought and interpretation. It was very rigid. Yeah, so let's go back. So you're in like grade school and you've got these other institutions trying to recruit you. Yeah. And so what what would people, how would they approach you? What would they say? It was actually amazing in that I remember it was like my second day of school and I'm sure my mom could also uh, recall this as well. I was really bothered by it. But my second day of school out in Utah, fourth grade, and there are very few things that I remember from fourth grade, but I remember this is that a Mormon kid came up to me and he said, are you LDS? And I said, no. And he said, well, you are. You just don't realize it yet. <laughs> just not yet. <laughs> and it was so ominous uh, to me. And that was my first taste of Utah, really, in a nutshell. And um, because of this 
constant um, tension. And, you know, like I said, I had many great, great friends who were LDS. Um, but I really educated myself and dove into uh, learning all about their history, their scriptures. I almost felt like I had to defend myself in a lot of ways, but the tension was, was in doing so, they were trying to convert me. I was trying to be a good Christian and hope that something I say may convert them. You know, it was just this, it was just this like hmm. awkward childhood, you know, no child should have to sort of go through that. Yeah, that and, shouldn't be um, in your mind when you're just right. hanging out with your friends in fourth grade, like, how, right. am, how am I going to get them to come to my right. church? Right, But that, that was a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure and that was the culture mm -hmm. um, in Utah. Um, but, you know, it was through me sort of, <laughs> I guess, like trying to evangelize, as sad as that sounds, to these people that I learned how different um, some interpretations of my faith was. So for example, I would go meet up with other people from across the Salt Lake Valley who were from different Christian churches, just like different Christian affiliated groups. And we would do evangelism, which you know, I'm I'm unchurched now. I looking back on all of this, it's wild to me that I even was involved. But we would do evangelism right outside Temple Square in downtown Salt Lake City. We would be at the gates, we'd be passing out little cards and things. But what I learned actually through doing that was talking to other Christians who had different beliefs and yet still claimed to believe in the same God and Jesus. And yet I'm realizing, you know, there there wasn't a, the kind of intensity that I felt with them that I felt within my own church. Um, you know, so I was sometimes it's difficult because I tried to get others to do it with me to meet these other Christians to, you know, we kind of saw it as our coalition, so to speak. Um, but there was a lot of disagreement. I mean, these people were using instruments in their church. You know, are they true Christians? You know, there was a lot of this like stuff, but I didn't find that intensity with them. And so thankfully, even just my association with people outside of my own church really helped me realize, you know, this environment for me isn't doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel comfortable, um, and that was a big reason for my departure. So, so what age was that where you started to kind of question things? Actually, in high school. Yeah, yeah, in high school I was doing that, and then when I went to college and would come back home, I would um, go on and off. Um, it was refreshing for me to be with people outside of my own church setting. And that's when I realized I'm not comfortable in my own church setting, yeah. you know, and that, you know, really my experiences, um, you know, being born into a specific group and the conflicts and tensions that come with departing as it would for anyone. And that led me to the career that I'm in now, which is um, quite different. <laughs> Which is essentially helping people remove themselves from yeah. those groups, right? Yeah. So I, um, when I had left fully, when I had stopped attending the Church of Christ, um, I wanted to make a difference in my own community in Salt Lake. And so fresh out of college, I tried to get involved in any ways that I could. And I didn't really have a lot of context to explain my experience. I just know that departing that particular church wasn't easy for me. You know, I knew I had been through trauma, but I was still putting the pieces together as to why was this so hard? Why was it so hard for me to just like leave? Mm -hmm. And um, 
it was exhausting. And I realized that I had experienced spiritual abuse, you know, the way that people were treating me, talking to me, or not associating or not talking to me um, was spiritually abusive. And so I started looking for ways within my own community that I could help people. And where that led me was I found a nonprofit in Salt Lake City, and I became involved helping people leaving fundamentalist, um, you know, FLDS communities. So women, children, men leaving polygamous groups out West. So that was what led me into this career field. Did you know that that was a thing when you were younger? It's amazing in that I probably had neighbors who were most likely polygamous and you wouldn't even know. How could you not know? Wouldn't there be multiple Older women living there? It depends. I mean, it depends on the kind of group. There's so many different splinter groups. So when I was working at this particular nonprofit, I was working a lot with those leaving the Kingstons. And they operate very similarly to how the mafia operates out east. They own a lot of businesses in the Salt Lake Valley. But what's interesting is while they're considered a polygamous breakoff sect, a lot of families within the Kingstons may not necessarily be practicing polygamous. You know, some are, some aren't. What's really important to the Kingstons is to preserve their bloodline. It's this sort of Aryan, it's a very sort of racist um, interpretation. It's, they purposely um, will marry girls off at a very young age to sometimes Mm. uncles, you know, really extreme forms of inbreeding um, to keep their bloodline pure. It's kind of this white supremacy ideology. It's so backwards, though, because that doesn't keep it pure. That creates issues the further down the line. Yeah. And that's just one example of one of these uh, polygamous groups. The Kingstons was the group that was the most intense to work with. My second week on the job as a case manager, I was called um, in. There was a woman who was ready to leave, and it sounded like it was becoming a human trafficking situation. So I met with her at a cafe in Salt Lake, um, and it was really late. And I brought a coworker with me. You know, there was two of us. And we realized really quickly that they had been monitoring in her movements the whole time. And like we, with a tracking device or something? Yeah. Yeah. And she was probably wearing a wire. Um, there was men who would come into the restaurant who were clearly from the group who would sit near us in booths. And they were trying, you know, I, I had to tell this person, I said, you know, for your safety, you need to leave with us right now. You're going to have to leave your cell phone. Let's get you to a safe uh, safe house. I had a safe house lined up for her. But the whole time you're saying that, you think she's wired and you think there's other people in there with her? We figured it out because she. W- it was a question she was asking. She said, I will not go with you unless you tell me exactly you know, where the safe house is. You know, it was the kind of question she was asking. She clearly needed help. You know, it was written all over her face that she clearly needed help. But the sorts of questions that she was asking wasn't and was making sense. And the men created a lot of pressure. They kept coming in and sit closer. I ended up having to call the police because I didn't think we could get out of there safely. And they're known for being a violent group. I mean, they have weapons. Uh, Some of them have military vehicles. Um, Yeah, if you've never read about the Kingston clan, I highly recommend reading about it. But I would have to get my car checked for tracking devices all the time. I was one of two case managers in the whole state that dealt with people leaving this particular population. So people knew my name. They knew who I was. Even my second week on the job, they already knew who Ashlyn was. And I had people who wanted to kill me. And, you know, we 
put ourselves in these situations because the women and children were absolutely worth it. Um, and there was one, so that was just one example um, where I had to- So get, what happened to her? Well, I called the police to make sure that we could get out of there safely. And she refused to come with us. And she went back to her car, which we were absolutely sure was, you know, they, they do a lot with tracking devices. Yeah. And I never heard from her again. And it's brutal because you know these people need help, but sometimes they can be set up by the group to try to get information. Um, you know, men don't like it when their wives run away from them and come to you for help. It can yeah. be dangerous. So there was another situation where it took months of communication. And when she was ready to leave, she was ready and we got the call. Um, and my partner actually went with me and I picked her up and her, her two babies. And she had a tracking device under her vehicle and we got the heck out of there um, pretty quick. And just to kind of paint the picture for how much control is involved, the next day um, while she was being transported, she had a complete breakdown in the car. She was so worried that because she had left the group that God was going to strike her down with lightning and kill her and her children. Yeah. And so while she had physically managed to leave, it's this mental entrapment. Well, yeah. And I was just thinking about her kids. Like, yeah. wasn't she worried they're going to do something to her kids? Like, how many did she have back at the house? It's tough. I mean, she left with two babies. Oh, she did bring yeah, the... Yeah, she left with two. Nice. Um, and I think that was... But she ended up going back. And sometimes that's what happens. You um, saved her and then she went back? Yeah. But don't they get beat up or something if they go back? The risks are so high. I mean, sometimes we could lose contact um, entirely. The risks are very, very high when they go back. And um, but sometimes, I mean, here's the thing. And this is what I, I, you know, I work a lot with families who have loved ones in cults or extreme groups is cults. And these extreme religious settings take away people's autonomy. They take away their ability to choose and to make choices. And what I want to do in this field is to preserve someone's autonomy, to give them the autonomy that they couldn't exercise while in a cultic group. And so if she made the choice to go back, I can only respect that choice and yeah. hope that maybe she would change her mind again. And sometimes... It's not that uncommon. It's heartbreaking to say, but sometimes there's a back and forth before, you know, someone fully commits. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about this with many people. There is a comfort in the known. Mm -hmm. The unknown is scary. Even if it's better for you, yeah. most people choose to stay in something terrible yeah. because they know what it is. Yeah. It's it's like this weird part of the human psyche that um, yeah. is afraid of change. Uh, wow, that's crazy. Uh, so what what is the purpose? I mean, I I get it from a male perspective why you'd want to have ten wives, but what? How does it? How do they factor that in via the religion? Mm -hmm. And how how does it make sense to the women? that they're all sharing one guy. To them, while it seems it it seems strange to people who don't practice polygamy, but to them, they are following the scriptures and, you know, to a T. So there's this whole historical break in that you have the modern day LDS church 
and Mormons. And then you have the fundamentalists who, you know, the FLDS, the, the polygamous practicing um, version of that. But what's interesting is when you look back in the history, um, those who are actively practicing polygamy are actually adhering to the historical account more accurately in the doctrines, more accurately in LDS literature than those who are not practicing. Where does it say to have multiple wives? Well, there was this split and there's this tension within LDS history where Utah, in order to become a state, had to outlaw polygamy. And that's so if, what the federal government told them. It was it was a thing. Yeah. So if you go back and look at that. So you can imagine when every there was a time where almost everyone was out in Utah practicing polygamy. And then when you hear, you know, that we can't become a state unless we stop practicing, some people are going to say, yeah, if that's God's will, you know, if we want to become a state, we'll stop practicing. But for the most part, that is, what you know, part partly in what created this massive split there was people who adhered, and that's why they're referred to as fundamentalists. They adhered to the original doctrine and beliefs, and they're like, why would we stop practicing this? You know, this is what we believe. So in a sense, those who are practicing polygamy are practicing some of Mormon, you know, Mormon, some of the truest forms of that. I mean, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, you know, these people had many, many wives. Um, but for women, in order to answer your question, it's a matter of salvation. I mean, it's woven into their doctrine that this is what you're supposed to do. And a lot of these young girls are born into this belief system and sometimes very isolated. So, for example, the FLDS was also a population that we helped a lot. This was the group in which Warren Jeffs was the prophet of um, down in southern Utah, um, Short Creek, um, Arizona border. And... Um, yeah, for a lot of these girls who were born in, they're in an extremely isolated community. Um, that was what was normal to them. They had very little contact with the outside world. There was a time where they couldn't have electronics. They couldn't have access to normal things. So that it was normalized from a very young age. So they just grow up in a household where they already have a bunch of moms. And mm -hmm. then at what age are they sent to be somebody else's wife? So I know with the Kingstons, um, they would send 15-year-old girls uh -huh. to Grand Junction, Colorado to get married because in Grand Junction, Colorado, it was legal to marry your first cousin. So Only in that city or just in Colorado? Just an example. In, 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 I believe just in Grand Junction. Um, oh. um, I'm not sure, though, fully about that. But that's just an example of how young I've heard of younger um, and when you're dealing with populations that don't have birth certificates, many of them don't have social security cards, we're dealing with people who are refugees often in their own state. Yeah. And so my goal as a case manager was to um, really help people integrate into society. And that was very challenging coming from really isolated or in the Kingston's case where they were fully integrated in Salt Lake City. Not so isolated, and yet they're very much in a bubble. You know, they go work for Kingston businesses. They they stay in a bubble while still fully working in society. So you have these different dynamics, and it's different for all these different groups. Well, and they're probably not educated either, right? Not, they no. don't. They don't know how babies no. are created. They don't understand. Yeah. I mean, they probably don't understand 
uh, various known things like the earth circling right. the sun. Like, it's heartbreaking. Like, yeah. what, what, yeah. what did you experience when you're hanging out with these girls that so, you're just like, you didn't know that? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of things. And I'd feel bad because sometimes when they'd be integrated into a public school environment, there's a lot of challenges. They could get made fun of because I've never heard of Disney. Yeah. Um, things like that. Um, but, you know, one of my greatest passions, and I ended up throwing a graduation party for moms who I helped get their GED. That's cool. And they were so excited to get their GED, you know, to just provide these outlets and ways for them to get educated and get involved in the community again. Um, but it, it was it was odd in that there's less of an emphasis on education, learning about society, and more of an emphasis on marriage and family. Yeah, what, what did they do? What was their role? Just to do laundry and cook and yeah. take care of the house? Yeah. Um, when you're watching, you know, sometimes up to 30 kids in a house from different wa- – I mean, you stay busy. And um, it's heartbreaking because from the boy perspective as well, young boys are seen as competition while they're growing up in the household for marriages. And what Warren Jeffs did, the prophet at the time, he's now in prison – Um, for child rape. What he did at the time was he would take the young boys who were seen as competition and the community would essentially cast them aside um, and would sometimes leave them on the side of the road um, with hardly any of their belongings. And they, there was a term for this, they were called the lost boys. And I don't see that as often or as prevalent as it was maybe like 10 years ago. Um, But It's still, you know, in some of these cultures, both from the male and female perspective, there's a lot of different challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can only imagine the environment of competition in which that creates. That's so crazy because it's the complete opposite of what happened in China where Mm -hmm. they wanted to have boys so that they could pass on the family name Mm -hmm. and they would get rid of the baby girls if they could. Mm -hmm. And so what it did is created... Uh, a, a disproportionate amount of males. Right. And so now I, I forget what the percentage is. I think it's 55% male to 45% female. Yeah. And so all, there's too many boys and they can't find wives. And so it, what you just said made me think about, um, I mean, if if each dude has 10 or 15 wives, uh, what happens to all the other dudes? Like they have to leave town or something? That's a... Yeah extreme amount it's of, competition yeah yeah it's very competitive um dear friend of mine christine caddis she runs uh it's called the voices for dignity it's an organization in uh that community in short creek and she helps provide resources to the community there and she's doing excellent work um but you know it's it's like the landscape of that community can be ever-changing <laughs> And especially with Warren Jeffs in prison, I mean, you still have people who believe that he's a true prophet, even though he's in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, some believe that he didn't really rape anyone or some may not even know why he's in prison. So there's just this there's with a lot of these issues, nothing's black and white. Well, yeah. I mean, what's the age of consent in that religion? I, I mean, there I, wouldn't be a there's rape an, or a, yeah. a statutory rape yeah. if there's no age of consent. Yeah, there's consent. no. Yeah, that's not they don't even probably would know what consent means. Yeah. And it's really sad. Um, so that was that was some of the work that I did there um, in Utah. And then um, I got involved with the International Cultic Studies Association. I emailed them and submitted a proposal. And I went and spoke at a conference in Philadelphia on my work in Utah. 
and some of my observations within the LDS community and the LDS church. And, um, you know, a job position opened up and I was hired and I'm now the director of events. Um, and this is for an international nonprofit, um, which has been an amazing opportunity. I wanted to further my scope outside of Utah um, and Utah-related groups. And now I'm in touch with people who've left all kinds of different groups. And I'm able to help uh, run recovery workshops and um, just webinars, events, things that can help people who are recovering from um, high control systems. You've been busy if you're only 26 busy. years old. <laughs> it's been a wild that's, ride. That's a lot. It's been a so, wild ride. Um, Comes at a cost, man. You know? Yeah, no, I can't even imagine the, the people that you interact with and the fact that you have, I mean, maybe not as an extreme version, but you have a way to connect with them yeah. through your past. Yeah, it was really important for me. You know, once I started connecting with these women um, who had left polygamous communities, you know, it's not like even comparing apples to oranges. There's nothing close um, to my, you know, I was educated. I was, I grew up in a loving family. Um, but, you know, it. you really, if you've experienced spiritual abuse or if you've experienced control in a spiritual environment or a church or a community, if you've experienced those things, you really can connect um, with each other on more than you think. And it's really powerful. And it really helped me sort of move on and yeah. be where I am now. Yeah. And I was able, once I got that job with ICSA, uh, which is International Cultic Studies Association, mm -hmm. I, I say ICSA for short because it's such a mouthful, um, I was able to work remote and I moved to Portland, Oregon uh, right before our first COVID lockdown, which I believe was 2020. Is it 2020 it's now? almost two years now. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. <sighs> Uh, okay, we'll get to Portland in a second. We got to go back to Utah. <laughs> we got to go back to I Utah. I get to ask you so many questions about Utah. Um, sure. I'm just trying to picture like little fourth grade Ashlyn yeah. hanging out, going to school. These kids are trying to recruit you. You're trying to recruit them. What would happen? <laughs> what would happen if there I feel was seen? Thank you. <laughs> now go ahead. What would happen if there was like an atheist kid? There or... wasn't. There, there wasn't. wasn't. It was wild in that um, I didn't know any atheist. Well, I'm sure there was, you know, uh, props to that poor atheist kid who was there. But when the neighborhood that I grew up in and the, the community I was raised in was like 99% LDS. It was one of the most concentrated Mormon communities in Utah because Salt Lake is is more liberal now as a city. Um, you know, there's more diversity than there was X amount of years ago, but I grew up 20 minutes north of that. Very, very conservative Mormon, heavy Mormon communities. I didn't know, I didn't know anyone who wasn't LDS. Hmm. Yeah, that's very sheltered. Yeah. And so what what was um what was a regular week like? Like how often were you expected to go to church or were you expected to read the Bible at night? Did you say prayers before yeah. every meal? Like Yeah, so we we would go to the church on Sunday mornings, of course, and it was anywhere from two and a half to three hours. And then we would go back Sunday night uh, for an hour Sunday night service. And then we would meet for like an hour on Wednesday nights at the church. Um, and what if you didn't go? 
it, it wasn't seen well. I mean, we were expected to. Um, and I can't tell you how often I just didn't want to go. Yeah. It was exhausting and yeah. monotonous. And when you counter in school activities and homework and like if you missed a Wednesday night service, sometimes that can be seen as bad as missing a Sunday morning service. Mm -hmm. Or if you don't go back for that second time on Sunday, that's not seen well. I've heard sermons preached on that, why we should be at every sort of gathering with the saints. Um and yeah, it's very difficult. Um, and we haven't even tapped into the college that I went to. What is the college you went to? <laughs> so I went to a school, um, it was called Florida College, and it is a predominantly Church of Christ college in Tampa, Florida. Okay. And, you know, it... There was generational involvement there. Um, my my mom went, my grandmother went, um, and it's tough when you are talking to people who've never experienced um, group settings like this, but I had so many good memories there, and yet I was still unhappy, <laughs> you know, and it's okay to remember, like, that you did experience good even though it may not have all been good, you know, when you've been in any sort of church or group environment, um, it was it was very intense. There was a lot of, um, we had to take mandatory Bible classes. We started each morning with chapel um, before we'd go into classes for the day. The men who taught there, and especially who taught the Bible courses there, were some of the leaders in the breakoff, which was the breakoff movement I was in back in the 60s and 70s. So I was learning at the feet of these men who were highly influential in the Church of Christ movement. And that was really intense. Um, and it was... Uh, because they were revered so highly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they were. And they, were see they really were seen as leaders in the movement, so to speak. And, well, and that's got to create like some weird power dynamic, it right? It does. Where those guys it does. may abuse. Yeah, that position to yeah. get girlfriends or whatever. I mean, I the school I was at, women couldn't be on the board of directors for hmm. the college because, you know, because it was a Church of Christ college, um, women couldn't be in charge of any sort of spiritual decisions for the school. And I worked for the alumni relations. I did inter internships there. I knew a lot of people. A lot of them were such great people. But the lack of diversity, um, you, put, you couldn't be gay at the college, that's for sure. Yeah. And as a queer person, that was, I mean, incredibly difficult. Um, you can date anybody of the opposite sex, like just very intense. And especially when it came to discrimination against women, um, being involved and being leaders, um, it was just heartbreaking. I mean, I remember my, my um, now husband, he worked in um, admissions, in the admissions department. And he recalls that depending on the department, unless it was an all-woman department, women couldn't even be department leads um, at the school. Because God made Adam and then he <laughs> made woman out of the rib? Like it, what? Why? Yeah, it, Women, essentially, in, obviously, uh, being a woman in the group was so challenging. I mean, women were supposed to remain silent in the church in that we weren't supposed to exercise authority over men. So for example, growing up, uh, women could teach Bible classes, um, but if you're getting up into the age where students 
are maybe getting baptized. So for example, if a boy decides to get baptized at age 12, a woman can no longer teach a Bible class with a baptized boy because that would be exercising um, essentially authority over a baptized the twelve year old the twelve year old boy, and that's happened. I've known people where that's happened to, and so sometimes there'll be a like a co situation where a husband would come in so that the wife wouldn't have to like you know abandon the class. You know he would he would step in, but it caused a lot of controversy. And so for someone like me, who was really um, I was a go-getter, so to speak. Evangelism was important to me because I was raised in a hyper-intense, you know, environment out in Utah. When I would go do evangel, like street evangelism, um, I don't think that was always looked highly upon because I was by myself. I was a woman, you know, like loving Jesus at the time, doing my thing, um, and so that that headstrongness, uh, I couldn't really thrive in an environment like that. And um, it seems so dumb. Yeah. You're out there believing it, doing your best to get more people to believe yeah. and they're mad at you. Yeah. It I seems mean, ridiculous. Yeah. I unfortunately, I, I mean, there was some amazing women who were professors at that college that I attended. Amazing women. And I can't mention names, but I learned so much from them. And I... I remember being with one and she was in tears because a male student had left her a review that was saying that because she shared her story of how she came to the church or was, it was basically her like testimony, so to speak, she was exercising her authority with men in the classroom and she was in tears. I mean, she's a teacher. We're at a Christian school. She should be able to like share her experience. And women, you know, are just silent so often, um, and not just the group I was raised in, but in a lot of different groups. And um, it's not seen there as discrimination, even though it is. It's seen as this is what God wants for men and women. This is what's expected of our gender. Um, it talks about, you know, women being the weaker vessel um, in the scriptures and that there's a lot of questionable interpretations of that, but, you know, I, I can handle it. And it wasn't until I did speech and debate. Um, and that's how I met my partner. He actually, this is awkward. He was my coach. Um, he, he's just a few years older, <laughs> small Christian school. <laughs> I'm just going to throw out that dynamic. I know that sounds really strange, but for Christian schools that are tiny, it's, it's not that strange. But he took this really quiet, I was being trained to be this sort of submissive housewife. Um, and essentially that's what I was supposed to be and helped me find my voice and was like, this isn't you. I remember him just being like, this isn't you. Like, you know, and he helped me find my voice and I learned how to think critically and how to form argumentation and debate tactics and uh, my partner and I, we did so well. We took first place on the East Coast many times um, in speech and debate, but he helped me find my voice. And that was really powerful for me. It was very intimidating and off-putting for people like my family who saw me as this sort of more quiet, shy. They're like, what happened to you? You know, that's only natural. I'd come home from school and I, I would go from a more quiet, you know, person to this very headstrong, argumentative. People had no idea what had happened to me, but I had found my voice. And that's what 
That's yeah. what's supposed to happen in college. Yeah. Yeah. And I even was able to find it in that environment. Um, and I, you know, being at that school, um, I thankfully re- still received a great education, um, even with its challenges and how strict it was. And that was just because I had incredible women who were my professors. And um, so I'm very grateful that I still was there. You know, I met my partner there. We left and got married together and moved back to Utah. Um, but damn, it was it was challenging. So when people knew that you guys were dating or mm-hmm. whatever, were you kind of like social pariahs at that point? Were they were they mad at him? Were they mad at you? I think, you know, I I think it's tough. I think it's easy to look at a situation like that and think, oh, she's what's caused him to leave the church. Or, oh, maybe he's what's caused her to leave the church. Yeah. You know, it forms a lot of questions for people. Um, but really, we just had great respect for each other. And we were brought together as friends because we were frustrated at the discrimination you know, this sort of institutionalized um, systems of control that were in place. And this college served to really feed um, young males who would go and get Bible degrees or what have you back into the United States into these churches of Christ. It was kind of this recruitment tool and technique. And what my husband learned from going to summer camps, you know, he was one of the recruiters, Um, being an admissions counselor was he felt that it was incredibly unethical to approach young children who are on a spiritual high at a Christian camp. Um, You know, they're with their Christian friends. They're singing in the woods that night. They're (laughs) praying along the campfire. um, And to say, hey, if you're happy now, you should go to this college because you'll be with these same kids. And I'd say like 90% of the college was made up of people who went to camp together across mm-hmm. the United States. It was used as such a recruitment tool. Um, so he he literally couldn't do it. It made him physically ill. Um, I mean, children are separated from their parents and they're in a very vulnerable state. Even though they're in a happy state, it's a vulnerable, hyper-emotional state. Yeah. And that's when these ideas um, can be very influential. So For sure. Well, I'm surprised they even let women in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it sounds like... If- we we got to bear the kids. You know, they're nothing without us. <laughs> yeah, you guys, you guys have a couple things you have to do. <laughs> they're nothing without us, yeah. No, it seems oh, insane. God. Like, if there's so much... Uh, if there's such a desire to keep you from learning and keep you from being ambitious and and doing anything, like, I don't know why they would even let women into that college. I'm actually grateful that, you know, the professors I knew are still there because while they disagree with so much of what's going on, um, they are making an impact on young women, just like myself, who was there. And they... You know, they could be opening up some minds right now, Mm -hmm. even though they're unhappy and they're probably hardly getting paid um, at this institution that's male dominated. Yeah. Yeah. It's heartbreaking, but I'm they've made a difference. And you never know, you know, this, you know, the church I grew up in was full of good people. um, But I obviously couldn't. I can handle the dynamics of what was expected. And I disagreed with what was expected. 
So do you still know people that go to your church in absolutely. Kaysville? Is yeah. that what you said? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, do they think you're like the Antichrist? Hopefully not. If anyone's listening to this, who still goes to the church at Kaysville. Um, hey, uh, no, I, you know, that was the church I grew up going to and um, had good experiences there still. Um, even though I didn't always agree, a lot of the people were great people. Um, and, you know, when we made the decision to leave, we met with the elders several times and we let them know our intentions. And of course, we went back and forth and, you know. It was tough, and they made an announcement to the congregation that we had decided to leave. Hmm. Um, and I haven't – once we left, I, I really never heard from anyone at that church. Hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes, depending on the church, depending on the, lo- the geographical location, depending on how strict the church is, sometimes there can be a physical, like, cutoff. Um, like, if you run into them at pu- in public – you know, it, there could be a degree of shunning. There can be a degree of these things. But I didn't really hear from anyone at the church after we left. And that was really hard for me. Even though I wasn't like necessarily close, close with anyone there. It was it still was kind of like this weight for sure. Yeah. I mean, you still grew up with them. They yeah. were your friends and stuff. And I felt bad because my parents were still there. And f- to, for them to hear an announcement that their child was no longer going to that church... You know, I, I have I have a lot of empathy for what they went through in their experience through my departure. It didn't just affect me; it affected my family. It affected our relationships, um, and it, it's it's tough from all perspectives. But it shouldn't be. If it's tough like that, there's a reason why. You know, and I often tell people who say, you know, how do I know if I'm in an abusive context or group, or how do I know? And I said, well. You know, one of the things you can look at is, you know, how would you be treated if you decided to walk away? What would be the challenges? What would be the reactions? Um, And that can tell you a lot about your situation. I I don't subscribe to really anything. I just like hearing the various perspectives. I don't – I'm not a firm believer in things I can't prove. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it makes it hard to adhere to any religion or spiritual belief, but I get it. If you, if you read a book every day and this book made you believe that if you followed these certain rules that you would go to heaven or something great would happen to you afterwards and you had kids who decided to walk away you would feel like you were losing them. Terror, yeah. I mean, I totally get it. There was a lot of self blame, you know, and that my parents had, you know, they're like, this, we raised you to be this way and you're not this way. And it was really painful for me and for them. It was like this lack of understanding that we had never experienced before. Um, and it's tough. And now, being in the field that I am and from my previous experiences, I've been doing intervention work. I've been working with cult interventionists who've helped families for years and years and years from all over the world who have loved ones in cults. And what we try to emphasize is, you know, you, it's so important to maintain communication. Um, even if your relationship is a little bit different now, maintaining communication is just so important if possible. I realize it may not be possible or healthy in everyone's situation, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's really important to have people like 
like your family and your life. And I loved them dearly and they loved me dearly. But the relationship now may look a little bit different. You know, there are certain things that we don't talk about because we know we're going to disagree on it. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. And that's healthy. And that's boundaries. And that's part of getting older and growing together. Sounds like Thanksgiving. It's like Thanksgiving <laughs> for just about anyone. Yeah. yeah. It's learning how to navigate those conversations. Yeah. And it's when your boundaries aren't respected again and again. For some people, um, maybe family members aren't capable of respecting boundaries. That's when it gets really hard. And then yeah. sometimes you have to make that call of what's truly best for you, for mm -hmm. example. For sure. All right. So you, you were in Kaysville and then you went to college in Florida and you came back with your husband and you guys were there for a bit. And then you came up here right mm -hmm. before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And so all the work that you've been doing up here. Yeah. Which, I'm which, happy to talk about that. Yeah. Which groups have you been yeah. focusing on? Well, there's, you know, people ask me, what's the cult situation like? It's always, what's the cult situation like, you know, in in Portland and it's the same as anywhere else. There's cults everywhere. Um, in terms of intervention work, um, we're seeing a lot of QAnon right now. Um, people who subscribe to QAnon, um, intense right wing conspiracy theories. Um, and that's a whole other can of worms that I won't even get into. Yeah, but. I mean, that's, that's a political perspective though that doesn't have anything to do with religion, but you still consider that a cult? Yeah, cults don't have to be religious in nature. Okay. Um, yeah, cults don't have to be religious in nature. Okay, what, what defines a cult? So here's a short-term answer, and then I'll give you the long-term answer. Okay. So the short-term answer is a cult um, employs some sort of use of course of control, typically. It is united in either theological, so that's the religious portion, or ideological uh, beliefs. You know, there's a unification there. There's a drive to fulfill those components. Um, and... It's typically high demand in nature. Um, you know, it's it can be abusive in either its group dynamics or interpersonal dynamics. A cult does not have to have a charismatic cult leader at the helm. It doesn't always have to be a Jim Jones situation. It doesn't always have to have that one. You it know, makes it easier though, right? I mean, it, it makes it easier to maybe identify something as a cult. People um, want to follow someone. Sure. Or a belief. Or a belief. And so, you know, like with something with QAnon that's not religious, a cult doesn't have to be. It's still united by these sort of ideological perspectives. And that can become, it's on a spectrum, right? So we use this spectrum of influence where you have believers in QAnon who may be on one end of the spectrum who believe in certain conspiracies, but they're still able to live their life. And it's not like it keeps them up at night. And, you know, it, it doesn't like interfere with their day-to-day -day life. And then you maybe have people on this end of the spectrum where they have become such intense QAnon believers where they move to Dallas, which is where a high, you know, there's quite a few intense QAnon believers in Dallas right mm. now. There's a leader in Dallas. There's a specific hotel a lot of them are gathering in. Isn't that the point of QAnon is that there's no leader? Uh, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of splits and these groups morph and there isn't just one sort of continuous line. Unfortunately, it makes it very hard to keep track of sometimes. And so but you get what I mean in that there's a spectrum of beliefs and involvement. And the more involved, typically, the higher the chances of a more cult-like experience. Whereas the less involved, like you're maybe on a few forums for QAnon, but 
it may not interfere with your life, you know, the less likely that you may experience any sort of high control dynamics there. Um, so I'm really careful back to your question of cult. I'm really careful about what I, you know, I don't like to label things. Um, I like people to tell me how they refer to their past group. Um, whether they say I came from a toxic church or a destructive group, or if they say that was a cult for me, I respect whatever label they use. And I use you know, sort of that label when talking with them about it, um, because people aren't always comfortable with the term cult. And the long-term answer to this in, is that, you know, it, we can condense down to a cult may look like X, Y, Z, like the three things that I threw out, you know, um, but amongst academics, amongst sociologists, amongst psychologists in the field, there's still a debate about the definition of cult. How do we define it? Is it even a helpful term in the first place? Um, I mean, even the term cult almost has a cult-like following, you know. Yeah. Um, in the media now, it's it's everywhere. Um, but it can also be a thought-terminating cliche. Um, it can be really easy to say, well, that's a cult. But, like, what does that do for the conversation? And what does that do for people who are in the group who maybe not see it as a cult yet but needs someone safe to talk to and so for me, I try to be really careful about labeling and defining these groups. And I like to hear how people are defining their experiences for themselves. Um, you know, from a psychological perspective, um, I'm currently finishing up my master's in the psychology of coercive control. From that perspective, I look at what is the psychological harm? You know, if you take the label of cult and you kind of toss it out the back window and you think of, well, how are these people actually being harmed? That for me is a perspective to take, a route to take. Um, because if you think about it, we should be really concerned about how people are being controlled um, in these group settings. And sometimes if we get really sort of slap happy with the term cult, um, you know, I don't want to diminish the harm that they're experiencing and what they're facing. And I also, for someone who does intervention work in the field and I talk with families, I want to be a safe space for people who are still in groups. So if someone looks out at the work that I'm doing and they see, well, Ashland's just labeling, you know, all these things of cults, like the Mormon church is a cult, the FLDS is a cult, you know, if I'm just labeling all these things of cults, they don't want to hear that they've been in a cult. You know, what does that do in terms of creating a safe space? And mm -hmm. so I like to be a safe space for people um, who are still in groups. And if they come to the conclusion that, you know, I was in a cult, um, then that's great. Um, but so, I like to look at psychological harm. Like, how are they being harmed and how can I help them? Well, yeah, because I imagine there are a lot of people who are involved in these groups who think everything is fine and they would continue yeah. to do it. And this is a controversial statement for me to say, but sometimes people who get recruited into these groups, um, they can change their lives in that you know, sometimes groups take people who are drug addicted, for example, and they say, if you join this group, we'll help you get off drugs. And sometimes that happens. Mm -hmm. And just like there's a spectrum of influence, like I talked about with QAnon, and, you know, I don't want to just slap a label on QAnon and say QAnon believers are in a cult. I don't think that's reflective of everyone's situation. But 
I just think it's really important to be open-minded to all these le- all these shades of gray, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, because for some people, they may have had a great experience, but also had a few instances of abuse and that was enough to get them out. And that's fine. Um, you know, with my experience in a conservative Christian faith tradition, I have a lot of great memories from being in that group, going to that college. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't always easy. Found your husband. Yeah, found my husband. <laughs> no, and that's fine too. And so there's all these like different variations, so to yeah. speak. And it's really important for me to understand people's stories. So you're working a lot with people involved with QAnon. What other things are happening in the Portland area that people might not know about? Because yeah. I, I knew nothing about the move of God when I talked to Lisa. Yeah. And she's like, yeah. I go, where where is it located? Is it like on the outskirts? She goes, no, it was right in the middle of North Portland. Yeah. And that blew my mind. It's that, amazing. Yeah. That it could just be oh, your yeah. next door neighbor and you have no idea. Yeah, you have no idea. Um, in QAnon, when I mentioned QAnon, a lot of that's online. I mean, yeah. that's all over the U.S. online. But in Portland, um, I help run the Spiritual Abuse Forum for Education meetups. It's called SAFE. That's mm-hmm. the acronym. Um, with founder Ken Garrett and his wife, Sharon. Um, they were in a very abusive Christian cult, and they actually did have a charismatic leader at the helm. And we run local meetups here in Portland. Um, we actually just held our first one last night. It's at the McMinimins Kennedy School nice. in the community room. Um, it's like every month or so. Um, and it's just been a really rewarding experience to have a safe space for people to come in. And kind of the model of these meetups and one that I really appreciate is there's no demands, no expectations. It's free. If people want to grab a beer at the Kennedy School and sit in the back corner and then leave after five minutes, that's fine. Yeah. Like we want to create a very sort of low expectation environment where people can come and learn about um, these dynamics of harm that can be created in these situations to hear from others who have experienced harm. We've had people from um, Eastern groups, um, from yoga cults to... Um, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yoga cults? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. What does that mean? I mean, you could go to a yoga class. This is just a general... You can go to a yoga class and have someone there who can be kind of a cult leader. Unfortunately, there can be... Like, it happens in all these different settings. Yeah. People who are involved in MLMs, business marketing cults. Uh, oh, yeah, like Amway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, it kind of sounds like it just has to do with whoever is in charge and what they intend to do and how they make people yeah, do it. It's like how people are exploited. Yeah. And what's what we try to educate people with, you know, we is in these safe meetups is here is how exploitation can work in group dynamics and group settings. Um, Because what's interesting is it doesn't matter what group you were in or where your involvement stemmed from. The methods of recruitment, of keeping people psychologically in the group, so to speak, they're like the same no matter what, you know, group or origin people come from. Mm -hmm. And so we just try to create a space, an educational space where people can learn about these psychological dynamics um, and help them better understand um, how these systems of control played in their lives. But we also are creating community in the Portland area, and that's really rewarding sure. and really cool. So, yeah, we've been we've been running safe, and um, it's just been really exciting. Yeah. 
So have you done a lot of research on previous cult situations? You know, um, uh, what's his name? David Miscavige, Scientology and Jim Jones. Yeah. And like, do you know Origins and um, the Rajneesh mm-hmm. with that guy? I forget what his name is. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and Antelope out in Oregon. Yeah. What was yeah. the woman's name? Sheila. Sheila. Yeah. Ma, ma. Ma, aman, Sheila. Yeah. 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 You know, with what I do in the International Cultic Studies Association, it's almost like I'm educated every day. You know, when people write and they're telling me their stories, um, I know, obviously, there's so many great docuseries. There's media that you can consume and learn a lot about Jim Jones, David Miscavige, what's going on with Scientology, Leah Remini. There's so many yeah. opportunities and examples. Um, and it's really cool to, like, watch some of these and look at people who have been interviewed in these programs and say, I've met that person. Mm-hmm. I know that person. My field is so large in that there are so many people who have been affected by these groups, but also so niche. (laughs) And so it's provided a really cool sort of world of connection for me. Um, And yeah, I mean, just through the work that I've done, I've met a lot of people from lots of different groups. And honestly, I don't try to sit every single day and consume information on different groups. Um, because at the end of the day, when people leave groups, their recovery needs can parallel so similarly to people, to others. I mean, it's the same with recruitment techniques. It's the same with indoctrination techniques. It's the same with influence. So many of these techniques are textbook similar, even if they came from a totally different group that I've never heard of. Um, and I'm more interested not in the beliefs, but how they were recruited, why they stayed, and what made them decide to leave. Okay, so if you can, go over those. Why, why are people generally recruited? Why yeah. do they stay? And why do they leave? Yeah. So in terms of recruitment, um, oftentimes we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And there's a misconception that only stupid people would join a group. Mm-hmm. Like Jim Jones, obviously that's a extreme example, but we think why, you know, why the heck would they join or people are stupid who join cults. People who join cults are just like you and I, you know, we're looking for a new opportunity. Sometimes it could be a business venture. Sometimes it could be a spiritual awakening. You know, sometimes it could just be a community cause. Um, sometimes you get wrapped up in a relationship. I don't want to diminish um, people who are in one-on-one cults. Um, that is, um, that can exist in family systems. Sometimes families can operate cult-like. Um, sometimes you can be in a relationship with someone who is an abusive narcissist. And, you know, sometimes joining a cult is like falling in love, as it's been said before, Hmm. where it's that initial, it doesn't always make sense, but But it's exciting, but it's exciting. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who may have been born and raised in a specific group or system, or theological tradition. Um, So sometimes they don't always join, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Sometimes they're born in. Um, And then why do people stay? That's a big question. And it's so different depending on the individuals. Um, Sometimes people stay because the cult got them off of drugs. You know, sometimes they stay for the community. Sometimes they stay because there's been a trauma bond established. There's a 
you know, method of attachment style that's very unhealthy that the leader has established with members. Um, when you look at people who are involved in groups, a lot of people ask me the question, why don't they just leave? You know, why don't they, why don't they just walk away? This sounds wild. Why don't they just leave? But it's a lot more difficult in that there's a whole psychology behind course of control. Um, when, you know, abusive attachment styles have been set up in the group, a trauma bond can be created. And the abuser becomes the sole person who you turn to for permission to do anything, for advice, for guidance. It's not simple. It's not as simple as just leaving. And sometimes, and I'd say 90% of people in groups have the ability to just walk through the door, but that doesn't mean that mentally they're prepared to do that because of the consequences. Mm -hmm. That means they could go to hell. That means they would lose a relationship with the whole community. I mean, there's so many individual reasons. And then why do people leave? Also very individual. Um, for women who I worked with within like the FLDS, a lot of those women left because of their children. They realized that their children weren't getting the resources they should be, the clothing they should have, the education they should have, the attention they should have. And it's sort of polygamous, isolated communal system. And sometimes children can be a really powerful motivator for someone to exit a group. Hmm. But it's not always. Um, for me, it was seeing, you know, the discrimination that was going on with women. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, th there was a lot of issues, um, discrimination against queer people, um, hatred against queer people. You know, it's... So if they clean that stuff up, would you go back? Absolutely not. Yeah. I don't think so. And yeah. when you say would, if they cleaned it up, it wouldn't. I mean, yeah. it's not possible. Yeah, it, it, would, it, it would go against yeah. what was written in the scripture. Sure. Yeah. A lot of people, and me included, stayed because we wanted to make it better. You know, for months, I actually stayed in that group, even though there's a term, it's called mentally out, but physically still in. In other words, you mentally don't agree with it, but you stay for certain reasons. And for me, I stayed for a while because I tried to make it better. I tried to make my voice heard. I tried to, in, you know, inflict change. And that happens with a lot of people in groups. They may stay in sometimes to remain contacted with their family, knowing that if they left, they'd be cut off. Yeah. So we have to be really empathetic to these different kinds of scenarios. We have no idea why someone may still stay in a group or what honestly helps them leave a group. Yeah. Have you ever worked at the Amish? No, but I know people who have. Yeah. Yeah. So can you say what is like the the largest group in Portland? Yeah, oh, sneeze. boy. The uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to sneeze. No, it's okay. Um, yeah, I mean like <laughs> The what, largest group in Portland. I just mean like – it obviously in Salt Lake area, it's it's more. Yeah, of, it's more it's more clear. Yeah, it, in um, Portland, you're saying it's not. I don't. In my mind, there's not one particular group in Portland that absolutely stands out as like an obvious answer. Yeah. Um, do you see the benefit in any of these groups existing as they do, or are they mostly negative? You know, when it comes to. You see, that'd be hard because then I feel like I'd be defining someone's experience and that some people don't experience the kind of abuse that 
others may face. Mm-hmm. So for some, I c- it can be argued that for some people, there's benefits to a group, um, but to you know, that sense of community, even if it is high control. But there's also an argument of, well, if a group is operating in a sort of high demand way, can there be any benefits or is it all bad? So this is the, this is the debate in which is had in the field of cultic studies. And it's different depending on who you talk to. And so what I try to focus less on is that sort of debate and more to on an individual level what were the good things that you experienced in the group? But what were the bad things you experienced? Um, and I feel like it's really important to like look more on an individual level than try to scale it because then we could be fitting people's experiences into a box. Mm-hmm. And that's what I don't want to do. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of very... But it's, it's also like tough to educate these concepts because it is, it can be so ambiguous. Yeah. Um, it's not always clear. There are some people who certainly want it to be more clear. You know, there are some people who are much more comfortable with putting the label on of cult on XYZ things, groups, organizations. But personally, um, I think that it can make it challenging for people who are in those spaces to reach out and find a safe space. Yeah, and the most difficult part is that everyone wants to be a part of a group. I think that's like a primal urge. Primal urge is everyone wants to be a part of something greater than themselves or maybe just in the community. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that we're gravitated towards cults, but it's educating people on, you know, what an abusive group situation may look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's softball team. Mm -hmm. There is your political party. Yep. Uh, There's your knitting group on Facebook, like everybody. Yeah. Everything is a group. Sure. And it's, it's just determining whether or not it's abusive. It's a destructive group or a a healthy group. Yeah, for sure. A knitting group sounds pretty healthy, (laughs) but I guess in in any group, there could be destructive elements. Like, oh, if Susie didn't show up to that last knitting session. Yeah, she's done. She's done. Yeah. We're going to scratch her name out. Uh You know, and that's, that's what we try to look for, essentially. Hmm. I can't say that we've, you know, we've never had anyone come to safe from a knitting group. Although if you're out there, Susie, <laughs> and you'd like to come to safe and you've She's been involved a in a knitting group, um, please come, you mm. know? So it's a fascinating subject. Yeah. It's hard to believe. And I talked to Lisa about this. It's, it's hard to believe that people can be going through this stuff and you have no idea. Yeah. Well, it's so stigmatizing and mm-hmm. I just try to destigmatize the whole concept, the whole subject of cults, um, why it's an ambiguous term, you know, why the field, you know, why there's so many debates in the field of the cult phenomenon. But, you know, there are, recovery is possible Mm -hmm. and people aren't alone in their experiences. Um, You know, we often go through so much, so much of the similar things, but um, we can come from totally different backgrounds. And that's really powerful when people realize that Mm -hmm. just to not feel alone in their experience yeah you think if they removed tax-exempt status that could change some things (sighs) that's 
hard to say. It's hard to say. I think that's why Scientology is so yeah. powerful. I agree. I agree. You can. I would, you know, it'd be interesting to see what would, what kind of the results would be of that if that were to actually. Yeah, because like. Because I've had people ask me that before too. And I think, I think it wouldn't, you know, it may not change the methods of control. It may not change how people experience psychological abuse in groups. It may change the overall financial situation, you know, where the money goes, how much is ex- is expected of people. But Scientology is more than just, you know, the money trail, so to speak. Well, it's there's, Tom Cruise. Oh, of John course. Travolta. Of course. There's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot more psychology to it than financial. I just wonder what what's to stop me and you from starting a religion? And There's not. Yeah. I mean, how do and you? And that's, that's what can be so dangerous. Yeah. 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 It's not, it can take one narcissistic person um, who is very charismatic and good at making people fall in love with him or her or they, you know, it, it can be one person mm-hmm. um, or there may not be one singular person who is the source of influence. It may be, uh, you know, we may be united in an idea um, or, you know, what we can accomplish and that can be controlling just as just as well. Yeah, and it's beneficial when you can't prove it. Yeah. When it's based on the unknown. Yeah. Cuz then it's just faith. Mm-hmm. And that's what most religion is, is faith. Yeah. And if you question it, then you're not a believer. In my personal opinion, there should be room for questioning. Questioning's healthy, you know, doubt's healthy. Um, I'm completely unchurched um, at this point in my life. You know, I haven't been to church in years um, after my experience, but, you know, I've always felt even when I was in church, um, I hated how much animosity there was towards people who were questioning. It wasn't that, you know, it was like, well, if you, if you question or if you believe this way, you're not in line with God's authority. You're mm-hmm. not interpreting the scriptures with God's authority or what's in line with that. Mm-hmm. But really, you just want to, you just want, you know, it would be my hope that people can grow together and look past these really intense mechanisms for control mm-hmm. or else things stay the same as they have always. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's the, the hypothetical that they always say, like if Jesus showed up, yeah, there'd be a bunch of people that'd be like, He's a fake. <laughs> you know? Like it doesn't matter. He's this bro. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way to like confirm it. Yeah. There's always going to be deniers. Yeah. It's crazy. Sure. People are crazy. Uh, do you still do you still believe? Are you are you spiritual in any way? Very agnostic yeah. at this point in my life. Agnostic. And yet I feel like it's weird because I feel like over the past few years, I feel like a very spiritual person, but very agnostic and like, you know, God and Jesus, you know, you put that off the table. Um, so I feel like my version of spirituality has been found in a way that was totally different than what I was grown up with, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I'm like, I feel like a spiritual person and yet very agnostic towards all of that. Yeah. The other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But we can grow. We can, we can morph. We can change. And that's what's, that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when we're not allowed to grow or change. That's, that's really destructive. I think. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I think that's a good spot to uh, shut it down. Great. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.